Hello, and welcome to the Fisheries Podcast, the podcast about the people and projects that make up fisheries science. Just a quick reminder that you can support the show through Patreon, or you can go to the Teespring store and buy some sweet Fisheries Podcast swag. I'm Anders Halverson, and my guest today is Eric Palkovax, who is a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and also the director of the Fisheries Collaborative Program there. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks for having me, Anders. So, Eric and I go back a long time, I think about 20 years or more, when we were both graduate students together, and I was chasing frogs, and Eric was chasing alewives. So, Eric, can you tell me about these alewife and tell us how you got started in fisheries? Sure. My graduate project was focused on trying to understand um, the evolution of a landlocked life history in alewife populations. So, alewife are an ancestrally anadromous fish species. So, they migrate from the ocean to freshwater lakes to spawn. The, the juveniles will grow for a season in freshwater and then migrate to the ocean, grow to adulthood, and then return to their natal lakes to spawn. And so this is sort of the ancestral life history of the alewife. And what I was quite interested in is that in Connecticut, there are lakes that have a different life cycle, an entirely freshwater resident life cycle, landlocked alewife. So they do not migrate to the ocean. They live their entire life cycle in the lake. This is a result of colonial era dam construction on these lakes. And I wanted to understand how this life history evolved, why it evolved, and what the ecological consequences of this life history evolution were. So that was a period of several hundred years since these reservoirs were built. So these fish managed to evolve in just a hundred years? Yeah. So one of the things that ecologists and evolutionary biologists have learned over the past 20 years, right, in this in this field we call now eco-evolutionary dynamics, is that evolution often happens fast. And in tens of years or hundreds of years is plenty of time for evolution to happen. And in this case, many of these dams in uh, coastal Connecticut were built in the late 1600s. And so there have been plenty of time for these populations to evolve all sorts of different traits from their ancestors. So they've evolved different differences in body size. They've evolved differences in feeding traits. And of course, most conspicuously, they've evolved to lose this migratory behavior. So they no longer migrate and leave these lakes. Well, so how did you show that? Did you use common garden experiments? So for for fish like alewife, which are, um, you know, challenging to to keep in the lab, I tried (laughs) and and failed um, to keep them in the lab. We really had to rely on a combination of observing phenotypes and genetics, right? And so we really didn't have the ability with that study system to do the common garden experiments that you might want to ideally do to isolate the genetic basis of these trait changes. So I have in my subsequent work started to work on other fish species where where those kind of tools and techniques are more available. But going back to the work in alewife, we're relying on um, just looking at wild phenotypes and then patterns of genetic variation. And why does it matter? Who cares? There's an anadromous version and there's a landlocked version. 
I think um, that's a good question. And um, the field of rapid evolution has somewhat become very fixated on the importance of uh, showing a genetic basis to trade change. Um, I would actually argue that from an ecological standpoint, it may not matter. Certainly for the zooplankton communities in lakes that are being consumed by this um, alewife planktivore, right? They're a dominant planktivore in these lakes. It certainly does not matter uh, whether the basis of that trait is um, plastic or whether the basis of that trait is genetic. So I would argue that it depends on the question you're asking, whether or not the, the, the genetic or plastic basis of the trait really matters. Of course, you know, thinking would be that if we have had genetic change that's led to, you know, changes in trait values, that then that is a that that then the recovery of whatever the previous trade value is might occur more slowly. So if we remove a dam, the recovery of the anadromous um, migratory behavior may occur much more slowly if it's a genetically based trait rather than if it's a plastic trait and can be sort of uh, reacquired much more quickly. Okay, so that brings us to another subject then that you've done a fair amount of research on, and and you I think you just did a meta analysis about the influence of dams on various fish species. Is that right? Yeah. So we recently compiled a lot of information from prior studies that have looked at genetic and phenotypic change as a result of dam construction. And in fact, you know, as one might expect, dams cause evolution, right? So fish populations evolve when people build dams. And some of those some of that evolution is due to fragmentation, effects of fragmentation on genetic diversity and gene flow. And some of those effects are caused by selection, right? The dam itself changing the environment in some way that creates a selective force that changes traits. But you said that it, we should take it as a given that dams would cause evolution. But Let's get back to this concept of the influence that evolution can have on ecology. That is sort of a new field, as you said, over the last 20 years, right? Probably 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, anyone thinking about the effects of dams would probably almost certainly first go to the hydrological effects of dams or the ecological effects of dams, because those are sort of the more conspicuous types of changes that dams have had. And in fact, you know, there are many, many, many studies, right, on the ecological consequences of dams. Um, there are far fewer studies on the evolutionary consequences of dams, mostly because exactly the reason you said that's only been relatively recently that people have started to understand that evolution can happen so quickly that a dam that was built 50 or 100 years ago is very likely to cause evolution depending on the situation. So can you give us some examples of, of where dams have caused evolution and if that has actually had ecological effects, that rapid evolution? Well, the most conspicuous example or the example that I've, I've worked on the most is the evolution of freshwater residency. So oftentimes when dams are built, populations that are isolated above those dams um, from, from formerly migratory populations, once they're isolated above dams, they'll evolve a, a resident life history. And that's true in alewife um, on the Atlantic coast, but it's also true 
um, in steelhead on the Pacific coast. So steelhead will evolve a freshwater resident form that we commonly call rainbow trout, oftentimes when dams are constructed and those populations are isolated. So ecologically, they have a completely different ecological role. So they're present in the freshwater ecosystem year round, right? They don't ever leave. They typically attain maturity at a younger age and a smaller body size. So they play somewhat of a different ecological role in that, in those ecosystems. And, you know, they, they, that creates a sort of a, a whole cascade of different effects. It affects predator prey interactions. It affects nutrient recycling. It can affect things like decomposition. Um, it can affect trophic cascades. So there's sort of this entire suite of ecological consequences that derive from this shift from a migratory life history to a resident life history. Do you, let's go on to, you mentioned at the very beginning that you've been studying this rapid evolution and eco-evolutionary dynamics in another system in the lab in a controlled environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we use um, mosquito fish primarily as a study system that's a much more tractable study system to understand the details of some of these ecoevolutionary processes at smaller scales that we're really not able to with species like um, steelhead, salmon, and alewife. So with mosquito fish, we're able to keep them in the lab. We're able to rear them for multiple generations in the lab so we can isolate the genetic versus the plastic basis of trait changes. We can run uh, mesocosm experiments. So mesocosms are these small aquatic ecosystems where we can easily manipulate environmental variables or we can manipulate the sources of fish that they come from, or we can even impose selection ourselves and then look at the ecological consequences of that selection. And so this mosquito fish study system really enables us to sort of delve deeply into probing some of these eco-evolutionary mechanisms that in a study system like alewife, where it's very difficult to keep these fish in the lab and it's very difficult to spawn them in captivity, um, we're sort of released from those constraints and can really get into the details of how these eco-evolutionary dynamics work. So have you bred some really weird or evolved in the lab some really weird mosquito fish? <laughs> what we've mostly done is we've taken mosquito fish from divergent populations in the wild and brought them into the lab and then tried to understand what aspects of their phenotypes are evolved versus plastic. And there's two major um, sets of questions that we've looked at there. One is the effect of temperature. So in California and in New Zealand, we have geothermal um, ponds uh, where we have a whole gradient of different temperatures from sort of ambient cool ponds all the way up to extremely warm geothermal ponds. So we look at traits like growth rate, body size, maturation, age. We look at trophic traits like feeding traits, we see that they differ across these different populations depending on their thermal regime. What we can do is bring them into the lab and rear them in a common lab environment and then try to understand what aspects of those trait differences are actually evolved differences versus what aspects of those trait differences are just simply because those fish 
grew up in different temperatures, right? And so we've been able to sort of isolate the genetic basis of some of these traits. Um, the other set of um, population comparisons we've been really interested in is um, the effects of predators. So we can take mosquito fish from ponds that don't have any fish predators versus ponds that have largemouth bass, which is a really strong fish predator, and then ponds that have bluegill, sunfish, which is sort of a, a weak um, predator slash competitor. And we can then try to understand how these populations have evolved to cope with um, differences in those predation regimes. Well, how have they? Well, they differ. They one of the. I mean, interestingly, they differ in their boldness and in their feet, in the, in really in their feeding characteristics, right? So, it's a really adaptive thing to do, right? If you're in the absence of predators and there's lots of mosquito fish around competing with you for food, what you want to do is you want to be the best competitor possible. So you want to be bold, you want to be aggressive, you want to be active, you want to be searching for food all the time. Those are the exact traits that will get you eaten if you are in a place with largemouth bass. So populations that coexist with largemouth bass, they're small, they're shy. They don't have a lot of competition for food because their population densities are relatively low. So they're fairly, um, their selective regime is really pushing them to avoid being eaten. Whereas the selective regime in the absence of largemouth bass is pushing them to be good at finding food themselves. And so um, you've got sort of these different suites of traits that respond to the presence or absence of predators. So clearly this has, and I think most fisheries biologists at this point and managers are aware that what you just described is also something that applies to hatcheries. And you have to be careful about driving selection in hatcheries that are not adaptive once you stock the fish. But are there other, um, if I'm a fisheries manager, why do I need to care about this sort of rapid or, or a fisheries scientist? Why do I need to care about this sort of rapid evolution? Well, let's say you're thinking about how to manage the spread of an invasive predator, right? So if you're trying to manage the spread of an invasive predator and you, and that predator is being introduced into places where the, the prey are completely naive, right? They have no prior experience with a predator. They're going to be very maladapted to that predator when that predator first enters that system. So there's going to be a very strong density response in the prey, right? So if you're interested, so if it's a native prey and a non-native predator, like we often have, you're going to see a strong effect of that predator decreasing prey density on a very short time frame. So that's something that is important to understand when you're trying to manage invasions. If on the other hand, you already have a suite of predators that are coexisting with a, a native prey species and another invasive predator in, um, comes into the system, there's already some adaptation to a predator regime that's already occurred there. So we may not see as big of a, as drastic of a density response in the prey to this additional predator, given that this population is already adapted to some degree of predation pressure. One of the things that we've shown is that this actually influences the mechanism by which trophic cascades happen. So when you have naive, when you have a predator that comes into 
a population with naive prey, that causes a very strong density-mediated cascade. So prey density decreases, and then the abundance of the resource for that prey, let's say zooplankton in the case of of, uh, mosquito fish, will increase as a result of the decrease in mosquito fish density. If you bring a a predator into a prey population that's adapted to predators, it causes a very strong behaviorally mediated cascade. So instead of reducing prey density, the prey are adapted. They sort of have this ability to cope with the predator, but they do so by hiding, by staying inconspicuous, which reduces their feeding behavior. And so you don't see necessarily a reduction in prey density, but because of that reduction in prey feeding, you can still see this increase in the, in the, in the population of zooplankton. And the difference is that we have one being mediated by prey density, the other being mediated by prey behavior, but the net ecosystem effect is actually, can be very similar, even though the mechanism differs. Okay. And so to segue from this to another paper of yours that I thought was very interesting, obviously, in order to have evolution, especially rapid evolution, you need genetic variation. And most of our focus in terms of conservation these days, the unit that we focus on is the species. But you argue in this paper that that's a little bit short-sighted. Can you tell us more about that? Well, all of the work on rapid evolution, right, depends on there being standing genetic variation within populations. That's the raw material that evolution uses, right? That's the raw material of natural selection. And so we're um, in, in cases where there's been a severe loss of genetic variation, where there's a much, you know, a compromised um, ability for those populations to evolve and adapt to changing environment. So when we think about how in some ways, we are relying on evolution all the time to keep populations adapted to our current world as we change the world, right? Humanity is changing many aspects of the world. And whether we know it or not, we're relying on evolution to allow natural populations to keep up with those changes. So when we start to reduce genetic variation in populations, we're compromising the ability of those populations to keep up with those changes that we're causing. And the downside of that is that they become much more vulnerable to extinction. So how do we deal with this? I mean, this term biodiversity is almost always based upon species, counts of species in one way or another. Our laws, the Endangered Species Act is based upon species. What should we do differently so that we have species that are capable of evolving and adapting to this world? What, what, how would you change the laws or the management or the measurements that we use? In terms of the measurements, I think we need to start paying much more attention to tracking biodiversity below the species level. So within species or intraspecific variation in traits, in genetic variation, and now the the tools are becoming much more widely available, right? The DNA sequencing technology is much more widely available to survey genetic diversity um, at a much more detailed level than was possible five or even 10 years ago. So we have new tools. We need to start to use them to track biodiversity at the intraspecific level. So we understand how much variation is out there. And are there populations that are where we see extremely reduced genetic variation? Oftentimes endangered 
populations and species are those with very low levels of genetic variation. And one of the things the Endangered Species Act does is it prevents us really from proactively managing gene flow, right? It basically preserves populations as um, postage stamps on the landscape. And as the landscape becomes more fragmented, how long can those static postage stamp um, fragments last, right? I think we're going to have to start to think about managing gene flow and managing genetic variation so that we can start to restore populations that are evolutionarily dynamic and can keep pace with the rate of environmental change, rather than being so concerned about protecting um, every little local um, population as unique. I think we are at risk if we only think about that uniqueness, we're at risk of losing those populations altogether as the environment changes. So how you, you say manage gene flow, and that sounds great, but at a practical level, what does that mean? And let's say we're dealing with fish again. It probably means doing some experimental introductions of fish from one place to another. And so one of the things we're doing, this is now not in fish, this is actually in salamanders. So this gets into your area, Anders, but Santa Cruz long-toed salamander is a federally endangered species. And we're working with US Fish and Wildlife Service to try to understand whether we have we have populations with really low genetic diversity. If we cross them with populations of higher genetic diversity and we release those offspring into the ponds that have low genetic diversity, do those offspring survive at better rates? And do they have better fitness than those that have depleted genetic variation? And so we need, um, I think we want to use some sort of experimental tools to start to delve into these questions and really ask, what is the benefit of increased genetic variation? And if we start to do crop, do experimental crosses and track those experiments very closely, do we see any benefits of doing this? So this increase in genetic variation, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about ways that it could benefit a population of salamanders, for example. And, and the one that immediately jumps to mind is a reduction in inbreeding depression. But that's not necessarily the only way that it could help. I mean, obviously, it can also help create a population that's able to adapt to a changing climate. Can you um, more articulately specify the different ways in which an increased genetic variation could help a population? Well, as you pointed out, the most sort of the, the, the lowest hanging fruit is to alleviate inbreeding depression, which would be any obviously deleterious effects of extremely low levels of genetic variation that are indicative of like siblings reproducing with one another, right? We know that those sorts of things can have immediately deleterious effects that are, you know, that, that can cause very low fitness, very low survival, very low reproductive success. But in terms of the longer term, we're thinking about genetic variation that, that we don't necessarily even know what the value of it might be yet. We don't know the associations between genomes and phenotypes and how the environment's going to change into the future. And so part of it is reestablishing the variation that might be needed in the future, even though we don't necessarily know exactly what that future is going to be or how that variation is going to bear on what happens in the future. But just having that variation gives populations future options. And yet there's some problems here because if you start 
first of all, anytime you start tinkering like this, my rule of thumb is there will almost certainly be unintended consequences. And that in 50 years, they're going to be groaning and saying, why did Eric move this salamander over here? But more importantly, you risk losing genetic variation that might have held on in one particular, I think of fish stocking in particular, where we spread rainbow trout all over the place, including dropping them back on top of populations of native rainbow trout, and thereby sort of swamped and hybridized these um, once unique populations. So you've got to be very careful in how you go about this. Yeah, of course, it's not a it, it it's not a go all the way. Um, it, it's sort of a, a Goldilocks zone, right? Of trying to trying to not completely homogenize populations so we lose uniqueness. But when we do have identified places where jank variation is going is severely depleted or is going to be a limitation or a future risk present a future risk of extinction. You know, in those cases, we're either going to proactively manage shank variation or we're going to watch populations go extinct. And so I would sort of advocate for an approach where we where we study populations closely and we try to understand which ones are at risk of extinction, what the role of genetic variation is, is going to play towards extinction risk. And then if we think that extinction risk is being dramatically elevated by low variation, then taking a more proactive approach to managing genetic variation. Of course, spreading things like spreading hatchery rainbow trout all over the world and introducing them on top of native rainbow trout is not a good approach for endangered species or any species. So what are the chances that within 10 or 20 years, we are going to identify, say with this salamander, a population that has a higher thermal tolerance and we're going to be introducing salamanders from that population into other populations simply because climate change is shifting the temperature of where of their habitat so quickly. I think if we want to hold on to some of these populations, that's what we're going to have to do, in fact. And one of the interesting situations is that those southern populations that often are most adapted to the warmer and in California, drier conditions are those most imperiled populations. And that's why we really don't want to lose them. We don't want to do nothing until they blink out because they actually, even though they have low diversity, the diversity they have is really important source of adaptation for the exact sorts of thermal traits we need, we're going to need in other places in the future. So those populations aren't just important where they are now. They're actually an important genetic resource for the rest of the populations moving forward into the future. So I sort of think of them as like a bank of important, really important genes to, to cope with future climate change. We really don't want to lose them, not just because we don't want to lose them where they currently are, but we really don't want to lose them because we don't want to lose those genetic variants that can help other populations adapt to future climate change because they have already experienced a thermal history that places further north are going to start to experience in the future. Okay, now I'm I'm thinking really sort of outside the box here in a kind of dystopian future. What are the chances we use CRISPR to start editing genes into different populations? Um, it's 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 already happening. So I think the chances are are high because it's already happening. And if you think about the goal as how do you get the trait you want 
into a genetic background that's otherwise locally adapted to the environment that it is, right? Mm-hmm. The best way to do that may be to say, okay, if we can identify the exact locus that's associated with thermal tolerance, and we don't have to completely, you know, homogenize the entire genome to move that specific allele into a different population, maybe the most efficient way is to just crisper it in so that those local populations are otherwise still completely adapted to their environment. We haven't caused any sort of maladaptation through gene flow. We've simply moved exactly the alleles we want to move into that new population. And all of a sudden, now we have a population that is adapted to its home environment, plus it has a higher thermal tolerance. Wait, you said this that's already going on? People are thinking about it. So I don't know of examples where this is being actively used as a conservation tool, but it certainly is being actively thought about as a conservation tool for exactly the reasons I said. Because when you want to, if you're going to do crosses of the very basic type that we're currently doing with Santa Cruz long-toed salamander, you're homogenizing the whole genome. So if there's any local adaptation to other environmental conditions, you may also, that may, that may decrease fitness. And so if you're interested in being precise and you really want just this one trait in a recipient population, CRISPR is probably the most effective way to just simply move one trait into a new population. Okay. I do want to talk about one more now sort of moving on to one more area of research that you have done, which is on the salmon in Alaska and the reduction in body size that has been observed. Can you tell us a little bit about that study? Yeah. So that study was the result of a a working group that was done at the National Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis. And what Um, I did was to convene a group of people that study all aspects of salmon ecology and management and evolution with specialties in understanding salmon populations in Alaska. And we had a lot of Alaskans represented in that study. It focuses on Alaskan salmon. And the reason we focused on Alaskan salmon is People had noticed decreases in body size of salmon sort of anecdotally, but it wasn't strongly documented with data, right? And so our first question was, were these body size reductions that people had no- had had noted, was it really happening? Could we document it really with real data? And we wanted to do this in Alaska because you might say, well, in California or in Oregon, or in Washington, there's there's so much disturbance going on, so much hatchery influence, so many dams, such a long history of disturbance that, you know, maybe we're not that surprised that salmon have gotten smaller in body size. You know, maybe that's just an obvious thing. And, and it's really not that shocking because humans have so disturbed these environments. In Alaska, it's a bit of a different situation. You know, it's sort of the last frontier Um, in terms of wild salmon producing ecosystems. And the idea that salmon are even decreasing in body size in Alaska, which is sort of this, you know, we have this iconic view of Alaska as pristine. I think that sort of caught my attention. And so what we did was we worked with the um, Alaska Department of Fish and Game, and they've been collecting data on age, 
size and sex of returning salmon in thousands of rivers all across Alaska um, going back to the 1950s. And so we compiled all these data sets into one massive database um, that covers Chinook salmon, coho salmon, chum salmon, and sockeye salmon. And we looked across the entire state of Alaska to document, are they getting smaller? Where are they getting smaller? Try to ask the question, why might they be getting smaller? And then sort of the, the last part of the study is, what are the consequences of the fact that they are getting smaller? And so you had some dramatic numbers. How, what did you come up with? The salmon are, are smaller. They're definitely getting smaller. So, you know, a 10% decrease in body size is, is not, you know, that, that's sort of in the ballpark of what we're talking about. Um, with some populations decreasing in body size even more dramatically than that. And Chinook salmon, which in, in many ways are the most um, commercially, economically important species in Alaska, and for many communities, subsistence communities, the most important in terms of their own just food supply, we see the greatest decreases in body size. And so the concern there is that it's not just, oh, well, salmon are getting smaller. It's salmon are getting smaller. This is costing fisheries money. This is costing ecosystems, um, nutrient delivery value. This is costing wildlife from bears to insects and songbirds all the way to the forest itself, right? Mm -hmm. Costing phosphorus and and, and nitrogen. Um, Because that salmon run is a huge nutrient subsidy for the whole ecosystem, all of interior Alaska. Exactly, right. We're talking about a very nutrient-poor landscape where salmon supply a very large percent of the uh, nitrogen and phosphorus into these interior communities. And so um, ecologically, they're super important. And if you think about the delivery of nutrients from the ocean to these to these interior ecosystems, it's a function of two things, right? How many salmon are they and how big are they? Mm -hmm. And so even if there's the same number of salmon, if they're 10% smaller, it takes more salmon to supply the same amount of nutrients to those ecosystems. And in many cases, they're not more abundant. And if anything, they're becoming somewhat less abundant. And so we may have some major changes to the ecosystems as a result of this decrease in marine-derived nutrient supply. And one of the aspects of those ecosystems are people, right, that live in these interior Alaskan communities and rely on salmon as a subsistence food resource. So what's driving this? The most challenging part of this project was to figure out what's driving this. And um, even though the trends are very consistent, From place to place and species to species, we see, you know, these trends occurring um, all over Alaska. We see these trends happening across all four species we looked at. Um, The drivers are, are challenging to figure out. I came into this thinking with a lens of fisheries-induced evolution, right? I thought, oh, well, we're gonna uncover that it's really gonna be fisheries, right? Because fisheries are notoriously size selective. There's been lots of studies on marine fish population showing that fisheries drive declines in size and age. And I really thought we'd see a smoking gun of fisheries. It turns out there is really not a smoking gun of fisheries. 
there did there was not a strong relationship between the intensity of harvest on any given population and the and the magnitude of the decrease in body size. That surprised me. That doesn't mean that fisheries aren't having an effect in some places, but it means it's not a generalized fisheries effect. There's other just, stuff. Can you just clarify? So fisheries have an impact drive in other in other situations have been shown to drive a decrease in the body size because these fish populations evolve to have a smaller body size because the larger fish are being taken out of the system. Is that correct? That's right. So the larger fish are taken out of the system or even simply it's risky to continue to try to live in the, in a risky ocean. And so you therefore want to reproduce, have your babies before you die, which even if it's not a selective fishery can itself select for the maturation at a younger age and a smaller size, simply because of the risk of mortality when by staying in the ocean, right? The longer you stay in the ocean, the higher the risk of you dying before you reproduce. So it selects for early reproduction. So, so that's been found in, you know, Atlantic cod is sort of the classic example of that, where we've seen a very dramatic reduction in size and age of maturation. And it's been now shown in a bunch of different fisheries, mostly marine fisheries. And that's what we sort of expected to see in, in salmon, but there wasn't a strong effect. And the other effects we tested were similarly weak and they have to do with various climate drivers, drivers that have to do with the increased abundance of, of salmon overall, especially pink salmon in the North Pacific due to hatchery stocking, especially hatchery stocking that has to do with Asian hatcheries, right? Producing tons and tons of pink salmon. And so therefore, perhaps intensifying competition in the ocean coupled with climate change, warming the ocean, right? And we know that warming temperatures are often associated with decrease in body size. Um, and so this sort of combination of warming oceans and maybe increased pink salmon abundance from hatcheries may be causing some sort of either bottom-up effect, right? So resource limitation effect that's impacting growth and or causing salmon to have to forage in a more risky way which exposes them to higher rates of natural predation, as well as maybe the recovery of marine mammals and many of their own natural predators that had been depressed for a long time, but are now starting to recover, creating a riskier ocean situation also. Okay, so we need to get rid of all those orcas then? Well, I mean, the challenge, right, is to have a healthy ecosystem that can support a healthy salmon run as well as the, 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 the orcas that feed on the salmon, right? And in a intact ecosystem, there are more than enough salmon producing rivers that produce more than enough salmon to feed all the orcas. It's only in our highly modified um, environment where now we're running into these conflicts between restoring marine mammals and restoring salmon where, you know, there's not many salmon. And if we're trying to recover marine mammals, every marine mammal that that's born is going to eat a bunch of salmon, right? So we have to, in many ways, we have to think of these processes, recovering marine mammals, recovering salmon, they have to be done in coordination. You can't really accomplish marine mammal recovery if we don't also have salmon recovery. All right, Eric, we usually end these podcasts with five questions. Would you like to answer the famous five questions? 
<laughs> Sounds good. I'll answer. I'll do my best. Okay. So we start with what is your favorite fish? Well, it has to be the alewife because that was the fish that I started working on as a scientist. And um, personal anecdote is that, you know, I grew up going to the shores of Lake Michigan. And so perhaps even the first fish I stepped on as a child on the beaches of Lake Michigan was a dried up corpse of a landlocked alewife. So that portended my future as a scientist. Excellent. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? I know what it is. It's um, scouting through the Yale Myers forest with me looking for vernal pools, right? That is, that's one of them. That was definitely on the list. Um, (laughs) um, My favorite memory as a scientist, that's a more challenging question because I have so many good memories as a scientist you know, I, I think when we do our alewife sampling, it's always at night, right? So we we catch them at night in a persane because then that's when they'll come up to the surface and that they're more vulnerable to being caught. So I definitely have some fond memories out on the Connecticut lakes at night with the persane scooping up netfuls of landlocked alewife. You know, I also have a lot of fond memories of... Um, somewhat recent trip to New Zealand to collect mosquito fish and in geothermal pools. So there's hanging out in the geothermal pools of New Zealand is not too bad of a place to hang out either. Yeah. It sounds like a good excuse to go to New Zealand to me. Okay. So speaking of which, what is your dream job location? I would have to say Santa Cruz, California. I mean, where could you do this work in a more sort of beautiful place with access to all kinds of different types of ecosystems. And what makes this place really interesting to me, besides its natural beauty, is that we are at the very southern end of the ranges of a lot of species with more northern distributions. And so we really are right here in the central coast of California, right on the leading edge of climate effects. Um, And so we have a lot of populations that are in exactly the situation that we have talked about, where they're the southern most populations, coho salmon, for example, the southernmost population of coho salmon is in Santa Cruz County. Anadromy in Steelhead sort of starts to disappear south of Monterey Bay and populations start to become purely rainbow trout populations if you get too much further south of here. So um, we're really at this transition zone and we're seeing the effects of climate, temperature and drought-driven climate change on an annual basis now. And that makes it a really interesting place to work. Okay. If you had all the money in the world, what is one project you would like to work on? I would like to try to do the CRISPR project. I think that trying to see if we can increase things like thermal tolerance, for example, Um, in populations that we know are going to be experiencing warmer temperatures and do some experiments where we test this tool out um, to try to understand what are the potential benefits and to try to understand what the potential risks are. As you had mentioned, there's a lot of excitement around sort of biotechnologies, but there's also a lot of potential risks that we don't yet understand. And so it would cost a lot of money to do the experiments in a safe way that we can really start to understand both the potential benefits and the potential risks. 
Okay. If there's one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Um, one thing that everyone should always be aware of is the world is always evolving around you. I think people are more conscious of this now during the era of COVID than ever before, but you know, COVID variants change fast and when they change, our entire society has to respond to it. That is not an exceptional situation in, in sort of my, my way of thinking about the world. That's the norm. That's not the exception. The world's always evolving around us. And that evolution is always having consequences for ecological interactions. And it's going to have consequences and it is having and will continue to have consequences for us as humans and, you know, the contributions that nature gives us. So we have to be mindful of that, that the things we do influence evolution and evolution in turn influences us. That is an excellent point. Okay. Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. If people want to get in touch with you, how should they do that? People can feel free to email me. And my email address is uh, easily findable if you look up my website at the University of California, Santa Cruz, or you can tweet me at Eric Palkovax. Great. And I'll put your email address in the show notes too. Sounds good. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much, Eric. And I hope that you have enjoyed this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast on Patreon or through Teespring. I'm Anders Halverson, and my guest today has been Eric Palkovax of the University of California, Santa Cruz. Thanks again. And remember, the world is evolving around us all the time, very rapidly, and it has consequences. Is that about sum it up, Eric? That's a good way to close. All right. Thanks again. Thanks, Anders. Thanks, Anders.